Welcome to the LA County Public Health Podcast. I'm Steve Baldwin. Tragedies involving opioids are devastating to families everywhere in the U.S., including California and in our county of Los Angeles. More than 932,000 people have died since 1999 from a drug overdose. Nearly 75% of drug overdose deaths in 2020 involved an opioid. Recent data show overdose deaths involving opioids increased from an estimated 70,000 in 2020 to almost 81,000 in 2021. Sadly, in September of 2022, a 15-year-old Los Angeles high school student died having overdosed after taking pills laced with fentanyl. To help us understand more about the dangers of fentanyl and opioids and what you can do to help protect your family. I'm joined today by Dr. Gary Sai. He is the Director of the Division of Substance Abuse Prevention and Control in the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Dr. Sai, thank you so much for joining the LA Public Health Podcast today. Thanks for having me, Steve. Dr. Sai, I have so many questions for you about this. It's just such a tragic problem that affects so many families, and I'm hoping you can help us really understand some of the differences here between fentanyl and opioids and what these drugs and medications do to our bodies. So I'm going to start with what I, I think is just a very basic question. What exactly is fentanyl? Fentanyl is a very high potency opioid. There are a lot of different types of opioid, and so fentanyl is is one type. Uh, and by high potency, I mean that it's very powerful in the sense that a very small amount of fentanyl can have an effect. Fentanyl is used in medicine oftentimes for pain control, but the problem that we're seeing increasingly now is that fentanyl is also being illicitly manufactured, not in labs, but oftentimes, you know, could be in garages, could be in warehouses, they're not being manufactured by pharmaceutical companies, but instead being manufactured by oftentimes drug dealers. And then they're being mixed in either illicit drugs, such as methamphetamine, cocaine, or in pills that look like everyday pills. Um, and those everyday pills could be prescription opioid medication, they could be prescription sedatives, which are you know sometimes used for sleep, for example. And so there are many instances now where people are exposed to fentanyl unknowingly because they think that they're actually taking something else. So is it safe to say that fentanyl is within the category of opioids or maybe a different way to ask the question, what is an opioid versus fentanyl? So it's accurate to say that fentanyl is a type of opioid and it's a particularly powerful type of opioid. Okay. What do opioids do exactly? How, how do they affect the brain? Yeah, so uh, a certain amount of opioids exist in the body. Um, and obviously, opioids can also be synthetically made in laboratories, or they could be illicitly manufactured, as we just talked about. Opioids work by binding to opioid receptors in the brain. Um, there are also opioid receptors elsewhere in the body, like in the gut. And when they bind, they'll have different effects uh, depending on where they are, where the opioid receptors are. You know, the most common use, medical use of opioids is for pain relief. And so when the opioids bind the opioid receptor, it helps to quell or calm down 
pain. The problem is if you take too much of an opioid or if you're exposed to an extremely powerful opioid, as is the case with fentanyl, as with many medications, there are certain side effects. And one of the side effects of opioids is what they call respiratory depression, which can be translated to a slowing down. And if you take too much, a stoppage of breathing, which obviously, you know, is not conducive to life. And so the reason why people die when they overdose on opioids oftentimes is because they stop breathing. Hmm. You said when they, when an individual overdoses on, on opioids, how much does it take to overdose? So, you know, it depends on the type of opioid that we're talking about. Fentanyl specifically is 50 times more potent than heroin and 100 wow. times more potent than morphine. And so when I say that it's powerful, it really is powerful. Something as, you know, a couple grains of fentanyl, uh, oftentimes it's a powder, can result in an overdose. And the reason why, you know, there's no exact number is because it also depends on one's tolerance to opioids. So if you have someone who's used, let's say they have chronic pain, and let's say they've used opioids for many, many years, their tolerance is going to be higher. And so they would uh, need to be exposed to more opioids in order to have the same effect. That's essentially what uh, having tolerance to medications or substances is. And so there's no kind of exact number for everyone. Um, it is individualized. So is there a higher risk for someone that's never taken uh, an opioid when, you know, they take like fentanyl for the first time, the, the potential for an overdose, is that is it higher for them because they don't have any tolerance built up? What I would say is that for people who have never used opioids, it can be easier to overdose on opioids. That said, when you have something as powerful as fentanyl, people who are who have been using opioids for many years are also overdosing on fentanyl. And so at some point when you have something that's that powerful, everyone can be at risk for overdoses simply due to exposure to something like fentanyl, unless it's, you know, being appropriately prescribed by a healthcare provider. Right. So is fentanyl safe if it is prescribed by a physician? In short, yes. Fentanyl was synthesized for very specific reasons. Um, you know, helping to address someone's acute pain was one of those key reasons. And, you know, anyone who's broken a bone or been in acute pain, you know, back pain, otherwise, there definitely are uh, medically appropriate reasons for pain medications, including fentanyl. The challenge that we have and why there's been a lot of attention paid to chronic pain medication use, right, is because of the tolerance. And over time, you know, people will likely need, need more and become can become dependent on it, right? But in uh, generally acute cases of pain relief, fentanyl is perfectly appropriate. Now, the other challenge here is what I was just talking about was pharmaceutical grade, medically appropriate fentanyl, right? Right. When you talk about illicitly manufactured fentanyl, there is no purpose for illicitly manufactured uh, fentanyl, and the risks greatly outweigh 
any benefits. And so in those in, in that case, there, there is no appropriate use. And that's why when we talk about fentanyl, there is a difference between if we're talking about it being pharmaceutical grade being used appropriately for medical reasons versus fentanyl that is not. So then what is the difference then between pharmaceutical grade fentanyl and illegally manufactured fentanyl, you know, in somebody's garage, a, a drug dealer, like you mentioned, in a bucket <laughs> he's making. Um, what's the difference? So some of the differences, the key differences are around just the process. You know, pharmaceutical companies have a very particular process, tight quality control measures to ensure that the purity and the effectiveness of what they're producing. When you know drug dealers are illicitly manufacturing fentanyl, they're not paying attention to any of that. What, what, what they care about is how easy it is to make something, how cheap it is to make something, how much they can make. And when they mix fentanyl, it causes additional problems because the way that they're mixing it, you know, there are no quality control measures. So it's not like it's evenly distributed. They're also mixing it in substances that aren't fentanyl, right? They're mixing it in things like methamphetamine, cocaine. They really can mix it in anything because it's just a, it's a colorless, odorless powder that you could put in anything. And they're pressing it into pills that look like other pills. They're, they're actually designed to mimic other pills. And so obviously that causes problems because people don't even know that they're exposing themselves to fentanyl. And so, you know, there's differences in terms of the actual synthesis of fentanyl between pharmaceutical grade and illicitly manufactured. And there's also differences in risk because, you know, pharmaceutical grade fentanyl generally is tightly managed by a trained healthcare professional um, with, you know, experience. And obviously the fentanyl that's being sold on the street is not, and it's being abused. Mm -hmm. we, we've heard a lot about you know, in the news lately, particularly since the start of the pandemic about fentanyl, how long has it been around? I believe it was synthesized somewhere in the 1950s, 1960s. So it, it is not a new medication. It's It's been around for many, many decades. Why do you think we're seeing an increase in use now? You know, the drug trade evolves with time. And prior to the fentanyl crisis, uh, many are familiar that we've been in an opioid epidemic for many years now, unfortunately. And when we talk about the opioid epidemic, um, there's been a lot of attention paid to prescription opioids, right, including fentanyl, but also includes other prescription opioids, things like, you know, Vicodin or Percocet or, you know, there's a whole host of other prescription opioids. You know, there is a, a thread in terms of you know, our, our country, um, a lot of other countries, but in particular, the U.S. consumes a lot more opioids proportionally than the rest of the world, being particularly reliant on prescription opioids and that translating over to there just being more opioids in the community, more familiarity with opioids. Heroin, obviously, is, is not a new drug. Um, it's been around for many years as well. And you know, drug dealers are oftentimes looking to evolve their product. And so, you know, heroin evolved to other higher potency forms of heroin. And then now uh, an even higher potency form of opioid, which is fentanyl. And so um, I think it's been a, a natural progression 
of a substance that was originally designed for one purpose, but also can be inappropriately used and, and cause euphoria in others. Can fentanyl use lead to addiction? Yes. You know, any opioid can potentially lead to addiction. Obviously, individuals have different predispositions to addiction, whether it's to opioids or whether it's to alcohol or whether it's to smoking or anything else. But in and of itself, uh, there is the potential for opioids to lead to addiction, including fentanyl. Is there any more risk with fentanyl than other opioids or is the risk about the same? In general, um, when you talk about higher potency or more powerful opioids, there can be more risk of developing a dependency there simply mm-hmm. because your body's getting accustomed to, you know, a more powerful substance, right? And so mm-hmm. um, it can lead to that dependency or tolerance more quickly. Yeah, that makes sense. So the top of this episode, I uh, mentioned the 15-year-old high school student that, that uh, tragically died in September. And since then, Uh, The LAUSD is providing all of its schools with a medication that can reverse opioid overdoses called naloxone. So can you tell us about naloxone and how it works? Yeah, so naloxone is a opioid overdose prevention medication. And how it works is by essentially binding the same opioid receptor that opioids, including fentanyl, will bind except when it binds, it actually can bind it with higher affinity or kind of uh, it's more even more attracted to that opioid receptor than other opioids, including fentanyl. Mm. And so um, you can just imagine, you know, a bunch of balls competing to land on this receptor. And Mm. naloxone is the ball that's the most competitive that can land on that receptor the quickest and the easiest. And so what it does is by having naloxone bind that opioid receptor instead of having fentanyl bind or another opioid bind that opioid receptor, it blocks the opioids or the fentanyl from being able to take effect. Got it. Is it the same thing as Narcan or is Narcan something different? Yeah, naloxone and Narcan are the same thing. Narcan is the brand name for Ah. a intranasal or nasal spray version of naloxone. Got it. Okay, that's helpful. Is there a prescription required for naloxone? So you can get naloxone through a prescription from a prescriber. So, you know, it could be a physician, could be a nurse practitioner, physician assistant. In California, there's also a law that allows someone to obtain naloxone without a prescription through a prescriber and instead through a trained pharmacist. There's actually an ability in California to get naloxone without a prescription uh, in that way, but it still would need to be through a trained pharmacist. Okay. So if I have naloxone or Narcan on hand, on my person, is it safe to then use fentanyl to get high or to numb whatever pain I'm, I'm having? It's never safe to use fentanyl. And, you know, one thing that is important for, for people to keep in mind, uh, even if you're carrying naloxone, if you overdose on an opioid, typically you're unconscious. And so you, you're not going to be able to self-administer mm. naloxone when you're unconscious. Now, you know, we do encourage that 
ideally everyone, um, carry naloxone uh, simply because we are amid the worst overdose crisis in both local as well as U.S. history. And even if you cannot self-administer the medication, obviously, you, you may come across someone who needs it. And that's an opportunity to save someone's life. And so similar to how we have things like epinephrine pens that people typically will carry around for, you know, severe allergic reactions or AED devices. Those are the devices to help restart someone's heart that sometimes you'll see on the wall in malls or other public places. You know, we think it's really important that naloxone be that readily available. Okay. So assuming that naloxone is available, we need to understand what the signs and symptoms of someone who's having an overdose are. So can you kind of share a little bit about that? What does it look like when someone is overdosing on fentanyl or, or another opioid? Yeah, so typically someone will have altered mental status or uh, they may be completely unconscious. They may just seem out of it, uh, for example. You know, if you if their eyes are open, which oftentimes they're not, but if they are, you might see what they call pinpoint pupils or very small pupils, pupils of the black dot, dot in your eye. Um, mm-hmm. uh, and then, you know, the, the cardinal sign of opioid overdose is someone who is not breathing or not breathing well. Other things that you might see are, you know, sweating, changes in color uh, of their skin. So for in particular around the lips, um, you know, you might see it become purplish or bluish, um, oftentimes due to not having enough oxygen. So those are some of the, the key things that you might come across from someone who's overdosed on an opioid. Okay. Yeah, that's that's super helpful. So how can people be sure that they're buying the real thing? If they have a prescription or if they, they really need fentanyl, how can they be sure that they're that they're getting the real stuff and not something that's manufactured, you know, in someone's garage? The only way to make sure that you're getting pharmaceutical grade fentanyl is to get it from a healthcare provider. You know, whether it's a pharmacy or whether it's your doctor, that is the only way to get uh, fentanyl that is pharmaceutical grade. In statements that the Drug Enforcement Agency locally in Los Angeles County have made, they've indicated that 100% of the pills that are acquired any place other than a healthcare provider likely contain fentanyl. And so um, if you're getting any pill from anyone other than a healthcare provider, that likely will contain uh, illicitly manufactured fentanyl. Wow, that's shocking. Is there a way for people to test the drugs that they have to see if they contain fentanyl? Yes, um, there are fentanyl test strips which essentially, you know, if, if you mix a, a powder with some water, you can dip the test strips in. It can tell you if fentanyl may be uh, in that powder. Um, and the reason why I emphasize may is because they're not 100 percent effective in mm-hmm. the sense that because fentanyl is a synthetic or a man-made substance, there are a lot of different uh, what they call analogs or variants different versions of fentanyl. And so the fentanyl test strip is designed to detect certain chemical structures of fentanyl, but there are, you know, dozens, hundreds of other chemical variants of fentanyl that it potentially cannot detect. And so while there is an ability 
to test fentanyl test strips. And, you know, lives have been saved from the use of fentanyl test strips. It's definitely not a fail-safe approach to avoid fentanyl altogether. Where can people get test strips or naloxone for that matter? Is there, do we have a, a resource for them, for our listeners to, to find those resources? The best way to get naloxone is to talk to your doctor about it. Mm-hmm. You can also go to a pharmacy that has a trained pharmacist to get naloxone. Mm-hmm. So those are the best ways. For organizations, you know, it could be schools or libraries or law enforcement agencies or homeless agencies. There is a state grant that they're using federal state opioid response dollars to help provide naloxone. But those typically are more in bulk and, you know, not necessarily for individuals. Okay. Is there a link or something on our website that we could point listeners to if if folks are interested in finding out more about that? Yeah. On the Department of Public Health's Substance Abuse Prevention and Control website, we do have a section focused on overdose prevention where your listeners can get more information about naloxone. We also have recoverla.org, a web-friendly application. So if you go on any mobile device on the browser, on the mobile device, and go to that website, www.recoverla.org, that was specifically designed to provide overview information of overdose prevention, as well as substance use disorders, as well as how to get connected with substance use services, including treatment, should one need it or want it. Uh, And there's even a button that you can click to directly connect with our 24-7 call center, where a trained professional will be able to link someone to treatment services. And there's also a a user-friendly, filterable service locator where someone can connect to publicly funded substance use treatment services across the county. That's great. And we will put links to those resources uh, in the show notes for this episode. So you can scroll right down in your podcast player, scroll down to the notes, and you can hot link right to those resources from your mobile device or from wherever you're listening to the show. So last section in this portion of our interview, Dr. Sai, if I'm concerned about my or someone else's misuse of fentanyl, what should I do? If someone's concerned about someone's fentanyl use, I think it's helpful to express that concern. No, not, not through an air of judgment, uh, but more just due to the very significant risks that we've talked about on the show today and also that have been highlighted in various news stories across the country. We care about our friends and family and community members, and um, we don't want to see another live lost to fentanyl. And I think it's also important to know what resources are available. We talked about the recoverla.org application. You know, we have a 24-7 call center for people who have commercial insurance. They can also talk to their healthcare provider and their insurance company about substance use treatment options. Um, it's also really important to know that with the, the fentanyl crisis now, you don't have to have a substance use disorder, an opioid use disorder to be at risk, right? Someone who takes a single pill, who's never used any drugs their entire life, but takes a single pill that they acquired from someplace other than a healthcare provider could die within a matter of minutes um, if that pill happens to contain 
fentanyl. And so, you know, I, I think it's important for all of us to be aware that this is something that can impact literally anyone, anywhere. And then, you know, there is help available. Thank you so much for that. And again, that website is www.recoverla.org. The phone number for the Substance Abuse Service Hotline, 844-804-7500. Again, 844-804-7500. So, Dr. Sai, just a, a couple of more questions. I'd love to know more about Substance Abuse Prevention and Control Division. What other services does, uh, also known as SAPSI, S-A-P-C, what, is SAPSI, what services does SAPSI provide? What do you guys do? Yeah, so uh, SAPSI is the county agency that's responsible for our substance use prevention and treatment system. Um, we also have a network of harm reduction agencies that serve individuals uh, with things like syringe exchange programs and naloxone, you know, overdose prevention. Really anything related to substance use prevention and treatment services is what our focus is. Have you seen substance abuse in, in our county change um, in, in recent years? What has changed, particularly since the pandemic has been around? You know, so even before the pandemic, we were seeing increases in drug overdoses. And so when I say drug overdoses, I'm talking about all drugs, inclusive of opioids, fentanyl, methamphetamine, the two top substances that are really driving drug overdose deaths locally in Los Angeles County are opioids, in particular fentanyl, and then methamphetamine. Those are the two substances that are driving the majority of overdose deaths. And what we've seen over the years has been an increase, a pretty significant increase in drug overdose deaths. And we've also seen increased potencies or more powerful versions, both of fentanyl and methamphetamine. And so, you know, it's, it's not a coincidence that the increase in potency of those substances are also the two substances that are driving the most overdoses across the county. How does SAFSI work with other programs in the Department of Public Health to combat substance abuse? So we contract with networks of prevention agencies that engage their neighborhoods, engage schools, engage community organizations to really increase education, outreach, knowledge about substance use and some of the risks. On the treatment side, we're the Medi-Cal managed care plan for especially substance use services. So we work with the state and we contract with a network of drug Medi-Cal providers in order to provide a whole continuum of substance use treatment services. When I say continuum, I mean, we have outpatient, intensive outpatient, residential, withdrawal management, and inpatient substance use treatment services, as well as opioid treatment services with the use of medications such as methadone or buprenorphine. And just last question I have for you, Dr. Sai, how can LA County residents access your services and programs? What's the best way for folks to get in contact if they need support? So for publicly funded substance use services, the best way is to either call our 24-7 call center, um, and the phone number is 844-804-7500. We also have a website, 
that people can use in order to connect directly with agencies if there's particular agencies that they're interested in connecting with. And, you know, one of those websites is the www.recoverla.org website. For individuals who may have commercial insurance, they can also talk to their doctor or their insurance company about treatment options with their healthcare provider. Well, thank you so much for this, Dr. Gary Sai with the Substance Abuse Prevention and Control Program with the LA County Department of Public Health. Dr. Sai, thank you so much for your time today. Much appreciated. Thank you for having me and, you know, appreciate your attention on this important topic. We're joined now by Ed Turnan. He is the co-founder with his wife, Mary, of Song for Charlie, a national family-run nonprofit charity dedicated to raising awareness about fentapills, fake pills made of fentanyl. Mr. Ternan, welcome to the LA Public Health Podcast. Thanks very much for having me. Mr. Ternan, may I call you Ed? Please, please call me Ed, yes. Thank you, Thank Steve. you. Thank you so much, Ed. Will you tell us a little bit about Song for Charlie? How did your nonprofit come to be? Right. Well, Song for Charlie was born out of tragedy. So Mary and I and our family lost our youngest of three children, Charlie Turnan, to a counterfeit prescription pill that was made of fentanyl. And this happened in May of 2020. And um, we had never heard about this issue. Um, we were shocked when Charlie died and, and we were told that uh, it could be pills. That, did, that didn't make any sense to us. And so when we reached, researched it a little bit, what we discovered was Charlie had taken a single pill, which he bought online, and he was told it was a Percocet. Now, Charlie had back surgery and, and he knew what Percocet did. He thought he could handle it. His back was hurting him. We know that from what his friends told us. And he was just kind of chilling out in his fraternity room, waiting to do a job interview on the phone. It was the very early months of, of COVID. And at some point that day, he went online to get a Percocet and he took that pill. And the doctors say that he probably he was gone about 15 minutes after taking a single pill that he thought was a legitimate medication. And that's we, we started Song for Charlie to warn other young people and parents about these counterfeit prescription pills. Oh, I'm so sorry for your loss. That's just so tragic. And thank you for being willing to share such intimate details of the story. So you said it was a counterfeit prescription pill. Could you talk just a little bit about that? Was it a like an, you said he ordered it online? Right. And this is what now Charlie died two and a half years ago. And sadly, the problem has just accelerated. And it really is a seismic shift in the drug landscape here in America. And that is that drug traffickers have begun counterfeiting tablets and they stamp them to look just like legitimate prescription medications. Very common ones that young people today are familiar with and assume are safe. Pills like oxycodone that they're prescribed for their wisdom teeth or Xanax that they might take for anxiety or Percocet, right? Or Adderall that they might take for um, learning differences. Drug traffickers are using this very powerful opioid as the raw material to press counterfeit pills and pass them off as legitimate medications and sell them to young people. And so that's what's going on. That's how why we coined the term fentapil to differentiate this from 
you know, it's a little different from party drugs, which I usually call, that's the, the bucket that I put like cocaine and ecstasy and maybe ketamine in, and then hard drugs where I would put like methamphetamine and heroin. And so we coined the term fentapil to really break out a new category, which are these counterfeit prescription pills. And the challenge there is that people, young people especially, are dying just because they don't, they think they're real. They don't know that these are counterfeit, potentially deadly. And so Charlie had no idea that not only it was a counterfeit pill, but it's to be assumed that he thought that he was purchasing from a legitimate source online. Well, he actually went on a social media app, Snapchat. Who mm. knew that the, this guy was selling, uh, was not a legitimate seller. I think what goes on is that young people, and this is another thing that's changed with the emergence of social media in the world of drugs, uh, young people today have a higher level of trust with people that they come in contact with on social media. There's this assumption that, well, we buy everything on Amazon these days. We don't see people that sell us things or make the things that we buy. And if, if my friend is connected to this person on a social media site, well, they must be okay. So one degree of separation or two degrees of separation is kind of like, well, the person's vouched for. And when Charlie went on and, and what these drug dealers do, they're very savvy marketers. They just post a menu. I mean, they're very brazen. They'll post a menu on Instagram or Snapchat or TikTok and say, this is what I've got today. And here are the prices. Mm -hmm. um, I think kids may it sometimes think maybe it's a generic pill. Uh, maybe it comes from, an, uh, like you said, an unlicensed pharmacy or a, a Canadian pharmacy or a Mexican pharmacy or, or Indian pharmacy, you know, an online mm -hmm. store. It's not mm -hmm. necessarily licensed. But two and a half years ago, Charlie certainly never suspected that it wasn't a real Percocet. And and the same, it's been going on, and unfortunately, the problem's been growing uh, mm -hmm. in two and a half years since Charlie passed away. So is that one of the things that makes them so dangerous in terms of, you know, this was a recommendation from a friend or, you know, uh, a friend sent me a link. That sort of that built-in sort of like false trust halo effect that, oh, well, my friend sent this to me. It must be okay. That is one of the things that makes them so dangerous. But there's a more important element, and that is inconsistent dosing. Mm -hmm. So these pills are, they, the raw material is fentanyl, which is a very potent synthetic opioid. It's got two characteristics that drug traffickers really love. It, since it's synthetic, the supply of it is unlimited, which means it's dirt cheap. And it's 50 times stronger than heroin. So this combination of you know, very inexpensive and very powerful is irresistible to drug traffickers. It's, I mean, it, these pills are just all profit. But the challenge is because it takes so little to try and get in each tablet. So if you do a little bit of rough math here, if you have a 20, 120 milligram tablet, which is essentially powder pressed into tablet form, most of that is inert binder powder. But of the 120 milligrams, if maybe a milligram or a milligram and a half is fentanyl to get it to have some effect. But fentanyl is so tough to dose, but that a couple extra, if it goes from one and a half milligrams to two milligrams, that can be deadly. And kids don't understand that the, if a bag of 10 pills, two of them could be complete duds, and six of them could be like get you high, and another two of them could add enough fentanyl to kill four adults. And you can't mm. which pill is which. And it's a complete, you know, Russian roulette crapshoot type of situation with these street pills today. So how can someone tell 
if they've got a fake pill, like a fentapil, or if they've got a, an actual medication. Yeah, unfortunately, it's really hard to tell. So the drug traffickers have basically stolen the intellectual property of the pharmaceutical companies. They, they stamp out very realistic looking, uh, the most common ones are Xanax bars or Xanny bars. And then these pills that are stamped with M on one side and 30 on the other. And that actually is a, a pharmaceutical company's brand, Mallinckrodt Pharmaceutical. Uh, but the drug traffickers pick them, you know, pass them off to kind of more naive, younger drug users as the M stands for milligram and 30 is that here's that 30 milligram Percocet you asked for. And they can also say, well, actually it's a Norco or you, you wanted a Vicodin, here's a 30 milligram Vicodin. So that's the most popular stamp and they look very authentic. Um, and so that's the danger. So the recent development is what they're calling rainbow fentanyl. That's been in the news. They still have the M30 stamping on them, but the drug trackers now have said, we kind of have created a market for these medicine-y looking counterfeit oxys and Percocets that young people who are like Charlie, kind of self-medicating, just taking the edge off, not really partying. We've kind of got that market established here in the United States. Now let's expand our product line and move from the fentapil category, the counterfeit prescriptions, to the party pill market. And let's try to penetrate that with multicolored M30s. And what young people and parents need to understand is, it doesn't matter what color it is anymore. If it's an M, if it says M30 on it, it's a fentanyl. It's made of fentanyl and could very well be deadly. Hmm. You know, before we jumped online together, Ed, I took a look at your website, songforcharlie.org. It's a great looking site. What what sort of tools and resources um, do you have available for for the public on your website? Uh, we think we've got a lot of them, and that's the the whole reason we designed the site is kind of like a grab and go resource for parents and educators and young people, middle school, high school, and college age, because that is the most impacted group by this problem. And we believe in large part, people are dying in that age group because of a lack of knowledge. So we try really hard to be very fact-based. We have a page on our website called Facts About Fentanyl, uh, which just kind of lays out, this is what we know. And we also have a high school toolkit and a college toolkit. And those are designed for, as I said, either administrators or like school officials who say, we wanna put together a program, an educational program, either in the classroom or extracurricular, or even students, like at the college level, if students want to just create an awareness campaign for their fraternity or on their campus, we've got a ton of resources there that people can just get the most current information and we're trying to get this warning go viral, right? And so we're, we're trying to push it out, you know, online, but also on the ground. And so we have resources for a whole different group, a bunch of different groups of people on our website. Yeah, that's great. And I see you have quite a few social media links in the upper right-hand corner here. So you're pretty mm-hmm. active on social as well, I imagine. Yeah, yeah we have, great. Uh, we decided very early on to try to go directly to young people and take out the middleman as much as possible. So we want to go where they are, which is social media and school. Of course, they're around the kitchen table too. And so we want to encourage parents to have conversations, right? And then speak their language. And the language really is short video these days. So we have a very, uh, we have a a pretty full YouTube channel with short videos that are intended for kids to consume directly. They're kind of designed for young audiences, right? And then we have 
over, well, we're still trying to grow, but we have over 80,000 80, regular subscribers on our various uh, social media sites, all of them really of the right demographic that we're trying to reach. That's great. Uh, so again, that website is Song for Charlie, just like it's spelled, Song for Charlie, no spaces, .org. I encourage our listeners to go and check it out. It's a great looking site. Tons of resources here available. Ed, one last question. Let's assume for a moment that our listeners, this is the one time they, they hear you. They forget the web URL, which they won't because it's really easy to remember, songforcharlie.org. But this is the one time you have to offer some advice to maybe a family who may have lost a loved one or may find themselves you know, in, in your position. What, what advice do you have for them? Well, if you're talking about the grief process and fa- other families who have lost a, 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 young, a loved one to this issue, we have met, unfortunately, many, many of them. And we're all in this club. Um, we commiserate and we share together. It's a very, very difficult process, the loss of a child. And a lot of us are stepping forward to do kind of what Mary and I have done with Song for Charlie. So there is a real groundswell of grassroots organizations in communities all across the country, most of them headed by couples just like Mary and I who have lost a child. And they're trying to get into schools and school districts and community groups and hold rallies. And it's really inspiring to see these other families stepping up to try to prevent other families from going through the same tragedy we did. Now, when I talk to parents about the opioid crisis and how to talk to their kids, one of the things that's going on is kids today are dying from kind of self-medicating, escaping. There are still kids who are dying in a party environment, but I think it's, it's a good idea to talk to our children these days about the fact that we're all under a lot of stress and anxiety. That's valid. And we have a saying in Song for Charlie where we say, your stress is real, these pills are not. You can't fix your real problems with fake pills. So it's more important than ever that families have open conversations about long-term kind of coping mechanisms, mental health solutions that are natural, organic, and are not kind of quick fix pill popping chemical solutions. Because, Because of this new move to chemical raw materials like fentanyl, that just is, it's more risky than ever to just turn to the street to say, I'm gonna get a pill, I'll feel better for a little while. Got to take that off the list. And we'll, um, if it's okay with you, we'll put a link to your website in the notes for this podcast. Great. So listener, just scroll down to the notes section of the podcast. You can link directly to songforcharlie.org. Um, I just thought of one last question, Ed. If I am in, in that situation uh, where I've lost a child and I'm grieving, are there support groups? Can you recommend a, a, a place for folks to go or connect with others to, to have that sense of community and, and support? There are um, grief groups for parents who have lost children. I know there's an organization, the acronym is GRASP, and that is a group for parents who have lost a loved one to overdose. But it's hard to find, and we have occasional online Zoom meetings ourselves for bereaved parents because it is kind of a unique club for parents of these younger victims of these counterfeit pills who really were just in their experimental phase and they weren't in a long kind of journey of substance use and and addiction and so some of us come together from time to time song for charlie we organize meetings for bereaved parents and just get together and kind of share well that's great ed thank you so much and that grasp is actually grasp help g-r-a-s-p h-e-l-p dot org 
uh, rasphelp.org. So thanks, thanks so much for sharing that resource. Ed Ternan with songforcharlie.org. Thank you so much for joining the LA Public Health Podcast today. And uh, God bless and thank you for the work that you guys are doing. Appreciate it. Thank yeah, thank you, Steve. Thanks so much for covering the issue and, and, and having us here. This episode of L.A. Public Health was produced by the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Our department is nationally accredited by the Public Health Accreditation Board and is committed to protecting and improving the health of over 10 million residents in Los Angeles County. For more information about DPH programs and services, visit publichealth.lacounty.gov and follow us on social media at L.A. Public Health. My name is Steve Baldwin, and you've been listening to the L.A. Public Health Podcast.